Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, we're in Isaiah. We kicked off the message series last week. The time period in the history of the world that we're studying right now in this book was around 736 to 687 BC. Uh, The prophet Isaiah is speaking primarily to a divided kingdom. Israel was in the north, Judah was in the south, and Isaiah is a prophet in the south. So he's primarily speaking to Judah, uh, but he's also speaking to the rival nation in town, Assyria, who wants to come in and destroy Israel in the north and also Judah in the south. During this period, Israel has given themselves to full-on idolatry. Um, They have, uh, when the kingdom split, the temple, Solomon's temple stayed in the south, so the people in the north had nowhere to go and worship. So they started setting up these false places of worship up in the high places, up on the mountains. And they would do these weird mixtures of like God worship and idol worship. And the Lord had had enough of it, and he kept warning them and kept warning them, and they would not listen. So uh, God raised up this nation of Syria to uh, bring judgment against Israel. That's coming in 722, but when Isaiah's writing, that hasn't happened yet. He can see it happening in the north, and he can see the same stuff starting to happen in the south. Even though they have the temple, they're giving themselves to idols, they're giving themselves to things of this world. Um, And that's essentially what a good portion of the first half of this book is about. It's about the idea that we are God's people, but we're not walking it out. There is a title that we have, we are God's people, but we're not living it. We're not applying what we know. We're filling ourselves with the things of the world, and we're exalting things that are not God, and he won't stand for it. That's essentially what we're going to be covering today. Um, the, the idea that Judah is heading down this similar path is the thing that Isaiah is really trying to address, and you'll even see it in the first verse of chapter two when he said, this is a prophecy I have concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the target audience. But as we said last week, when it comes to um, prophecy, it's not just locked into this period. There is a, uh, a foretelling aspect of it, and there's a forthtelling. There's a communicating to the people here, but there's also a communicating about what's happening in the future. And since we are God's people as well, we need to take heed to what the prophet said because we can fall into the same traps. Same traps uh, from chapter one being the fact that they didn't know who they were. And because they didn't know who they were, they abandoned uh, their duties to God and they started teaching their children how to abandon their duties to God. They lacked justice in dealing with each other. So those were um, primarily the accusations that God brought through the prophet Isaiah chapter one. When we get to chapter two, Um, one thing that you should understand is that when we reference chapters and verses, the original writers didn't have those in there. So when Isaiah's writing, he's like, all right, I'm good, 31 verses, chapter one, let's go, let's make this a chapter two, verse one. No, he just wrote these prophecies, and then the chapters and verses were added much later in order to help reference. The problem is that a lot of those chapters and verses they just kind of fall in a really weird place. They don't really match up. Uh, a good example of that is um, today, chapter four, verse one, should probably have been included in chapter three because the thought is grouped with chapter three, not chapter four. But we have what we have and we're gonna roll through it. So I wanna go through chapter two and four, two through four today. And the reason why is because these chapters are a collection of one main prophecy that Isaiah is giving the people of Judah. And what's, what you're gonna see is in chapter two, the beginning of it, Isaiah is saying, guys, 
This is what the Lord wants. This is what he wants for his people. This is what will be in the future. This is the kind of kingdom God is building. And so in the first half of two, Isaiah paints a picture. This is what will be. This is what God's gonna do. And then right around the middle of two through the end of three, four, verse one, he introduces this concept. This is what will be, but guys, this is what is. And then as he finishes four, he finishes on a final note of, but this is what will be. And so here's the beautiful imagery that Isaiah is giving us today. And this is why it's important to us. Guys, this is what's coming. And it's beautiful. And it's worth giving your life for. It's worth forsaking every good thing and bad thing in this world because this is what he's gonna do, whether you want to, whether you want him to or not. This is what's coming. But you gotta understand that this thing that's coming, it's not here right now. What is, is, is quite filthy. What is among God's people is not what is coming. And so in order for us to get to where we will be, there's some things that need to take place right now where we are. And it requires us to take an honest self-assessment of ourselves and do this, there's this thing that we like to do as humans where we kind of deflect. Well, there's an issue, well, my issue that I, we're all talking, it's not as bad as that guy's issue. Look over there, look over there, look over here. It's, uh, my stuff is not as bad as this stuff over here. And God's like, look, I, I'm not, I don't deal in, in, in that. What I deal in is in the hearts of men. And I've, I've got a plan and I want you to be a part of it but that's gonna require some purification right now because where you are as the people of God, it isn't pretty. This is the message of Isaiah, okay? So here's what I wanna do. I wanna start with what will be, and we'll do that in Isaiah chapter two. We'll start in verse one. We'll put the uh, verse up on the screen. All right, so Isaiah 2.1 says this. It says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Just a quick pause. Why would he do another introduction after he did the same introduction at the beginning of chapter one? The thought is that that chapter one was a, was a prophecy that stood alone that was kind of circulated among Judah. And this collection, two to four, maybe even two to five, was a collection of prophecies that were circulated among Judah also. So they were a collection of all of the works of Isaiah Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, but they were also broken off and, and kind of shared around. Um, and Isaiah is making it clear, like, look, God showed me this and you need to kind of perk up. You need to pay attention. So what, is, what, did, what did God show Isaiah uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem? Verse two, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Okay, so we're not talking about his period. We're not even talking about our period. We're talking about the last days, the latter days, and the very, very end. In the latter days, here's what's gonna happen, people. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Praise God. Jesus, in the last days, no matter how dark it seems right now, look beyond that, because in the last days, God will have the final say, and what that looks like is a mountain that the Lord rests on that is higher than every other mountain around. 
Now we're starting to wade into the, the waters of poetry here. And some of you are just like, uh, can we study the book of Numbers or something? Because I don't really like poetry, it's confusing. But some of you are just like, where's the deep end? I'm ready to jump in, I love poetry. Prophecy is not always poetry, but it's most often poetry. And what I mean by that is when the prophets are speaking about what God is doing now or what he will do in the future, the prophets always use poetic language because what it does is it, it wraps symbols in the minds of the reader to communicate huge ideas with very, very simple principles. And this is one of them, the idea of a mountain and a river. In the ancient times, it was a common view that the gods lived on mountains because people don't live on mountains. That's too hard to get up there. It's too cold up there. No one lives up there. Humans don't live up there. And they're such massive things. Gods live among the mountains. And so the prophet is communicating that, look, in the latter days, there's going to come a period where God is going to be elevated. It's not like he's actually gonna live on some mountain. What he's saying poetically is that in the last days, the kingdom of God will be the largest mountain in the entire world and it will be so massive and so high above everything else, there will not be a single doubt in anybody's mind who is actually in charge and who the real God is. And it will be so clear that the nations will start flowing to the kingdom of God, almost like a river that flows uphill. That's wild, huh? The rivers, the the nations are going to flow like rivers. Nations, multitudes, billions of people are going to see our God elevated above every other God, and they're going to say, I want that. I want him. But it doesn't stop there because he keeps going. Verse three, it says, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. I don't just want to know about him. I want to walk out what I know about him. That's huge. The idea that there are things we know about him and then there are things that we apply to our lives and actually do based off of what we know about him. And Isaiah's telling there's coming a day when the whole world will get this reality and they will flow to his kingdom and they will want Jesus. And they will say, please teach us your ways so we can walk in your path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Oh, man. So you're telling me that a time is coming sometime in the future where God will be magnified over all the earth. The earth will respond appropriately. They will come to him and say, teach us your ways so that we can walk in them. And one of the first things they learn is to stop making instruments of war, but to start forging instruments of war into instruments of agriculture because the thing that's most important when God rules is not trying to protect or expand our own personal kingdom. It's about being fruitful for his kingdom. That's amazing. That is something that is worth giving your life to. 
the idea that one day we're going to serve a king who's going to end all war and all strife and all sickness and conquer all death and all of the nations will want a part of it. It's beautiful. And he ends this with his invitation, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now what is this period he's talking about and what is this invitation to come walk in this light? I believe that what he's describing to us is the millennial reign of Christ. And we talked about this in the book of Matthew in our understanding of what's gonna happen in the end times. I'm not gonna rehash all of that, but a brief synopsis is that Jesus at some time in the future is going to return to earth and set up his earthly kingdom. And there's gonna be a thousand year period where he's gonna rule and reign on earth from Jerusalem as an earthly king. And this is the kind of stuff that we are promised is gonna start happening that his kingdom is gonna ascend above every other kingdom, that all nations are gonna wanna come and learn and walk. Now this invitation of what's coming, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, guys, if you know that this is what's coming in the future, if this is what's promised to us, then go ahead and start walking it out right now. If you know that this is what's our future, then go ahead and start living in the light of this now. Start living and acting and beating your swords into uh, plowshares and turning your spears into pruning hooks. Stop trying to force every instrument in your life as some kind of instrument of war to expand or, or to build on or to, uh, to kind of raise some flag for your own personal kingdom and your own personal life and kind of dig some corner of the universe out for yourself and, and, and that's reflected in some kind of retirement plan and, 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 and just the idea that we could own, build our own personal kingdom. If this is what's coming and you don't get a personal kingdom, then go ahead and stop living like you've got one right now. Forsake all if that's what's coming our way anyway. But unfortunately, many of God's people don't live in the light of what we know is coming. We know that the Lord is gonna be elevated above everything, but we spend most of our times elevating ourselves as the highest mountain. We elevate humanity as a higher mountain than God. And this is the central issue that Isaiah is going to address moving forward, and I believe this is one of the central issues of our day, and we should take note. The central issue being human exaltation. Exalting humans their thoughts, their experiences, people, conversations, feelings, excess, elevating all of that because it's humanity above God. Now here's the issue with human exaltation. When you exalt humanity as the highest mountain and it is the thing that holds the most worth, then anything that's not human has no value. When the thing that is the most valuable is your opinion or your experiences or the opinions and experiences of others, what is most important is the value that humanity gives you and the high mountain you sit on. When that is the most valuable thing, then everything else holds no value. Now, what is everything else? 
Truth holds no value because it's not humanity. God holds no value because it's not humanity. His law, his commandments, obedience to his word, it holds no value because there is a mountain that is higher than that and that mountain is humanity. This is the central issue that Isaiah is dealing with, the great chasm between what will be and what is in that thing called human exaltation. So let's dive into it. Let's go to verse six, chapter two. So we've seen what will be, but let's take a look at what is. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east. Fortune tellers like the Philistines, they strike their hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Those are instruments of war. Their land is filled with idols. They they bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. They make these idols and then bow down like they have more power over them. So man is humbled and each one of them is brought low. Do not Forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty because the haughty looks of man shall be brought very, very low and the lofty pride of men, it's gonna be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Here's some poetic language against the cedars of Lebanon, these beautiful, massive trees, lofty and lifted up, against the massive oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, against all those beautiful craft, against the the haughtiness of man. It's gonna be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. When that happens, when the Lord brings low all of our high stuff, the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people, they're gonna enter the caves and the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty as he rises to terrify the earth. And that day, Mankind is gonna cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they've made for themselves to worship. They're gonna cast them to the moles and the bats. What's the moles and the bats? Those are unclean animals. And so the people of Israel at the mouth of Isaiah are saying the things that you spent your entire life saving up to get when you are confronted with the majesty of the Lord and he brings you low because of how high you've exalted yourself. The only thing you're gonna do with that expensive thing you bought is toss it to the side as something that's unclean. You're gonna enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord or from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So guys, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? So in 6 through 22, God's people are exalting humanity over God and it's clear in the fact that they love things from the east. God's people love foreign worldviews. They love mysticism. They love fortune telling. 
They love manipulating people with people. Just call this number and then somebody will tell you a fortune, this, uh, this idea that somebody has some hidden knowledge and if you just stand on your leg the right way and drink the right drink, then you're somehow gonna understand some kind of mystic corner of, it's gotta be more complex than just reading the word and obeying it. There's gotta be more to that. We exalt humanity over God in the way that we desire treasure and technology and instruments of war and the way we worship things made with our own hands. And Isaiah says, guys, God, he doesn't tolerate that. He's not making a people for himself that spend all their time chasing the world and the things they make with their own hands. He has a plan and his plan is to bring everything high, low, He's gonna bring everything that we exalt above him to the ground. This is stuff in your own personal life. This is stuff in your family. This is government systems. This is entire economies. The result when humans elevate the systems of God above him, it's the same every single time. It is always burnt to the ground and brought low. Which is funny, that's the irony. We spend all of our time trying to elevate, but we always get the same result. When we try to lift it high, it always ends up low. It's almost like somebody else is behind this. That every time we try to advance, all we get is just the things in our hands crumble. Now this purging that Isaiah is talking about is something that will happen ultimately at his return, but we see shadows of this all throughout history. And this is why it's applicable to us, because he's talking in the Babylonian exile period. He's saying the way that you're living, Judah, is gonna be brought low in the way that you're gonna be brought over to the Babylonians in exile. You're gonna lose your homes. You're gonna lose your kingdom. You're gonna lose your jobs, you're gonna lose your family because you, you, you turn your back on the Lord. And you're gonna be brought low, but it's not just the Babylonian exile, it's early church persecution. It's the purging of modern worldviews that have started to creep into the church. Because some charismatic guy had some success in building a large church really fast and all of a sudden everybody had their value in not serving the Lord but in making some form of trying to make their church as big as possible and all of a sudden everyone's flocking to this guy and elevating him, please teach us your ways. How did you build such a big church? And then we've got for the entire, the year 2000s, it's all these church planning seminars, all these conferences you can go to to pay these people. How is it that you were able to pull this off, please give us, give us the details. Well, I mean, here's the details, they're right here. You don't have to pay somebody $350 to go listen to them speak over the weekend because all this stuff is just recycled garbage that they learned in the world. All of it, especially in America, it's corporate nonsense. It's this idea that you, 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 can, you can go out and start some small business and it's not successful in the first year, just forsake it and run. That you can, you, you're, re, you're ready and equipped if you're the kind of charismatic leader that can draw people unto yourself. 
to yourself. If you, if you can find these angel investors to invest in this, there's no longevity to it. There's no instilling in the heart of the people that, that we're going to be, we're going to be, uh, uh, we're going to act with character and honesty with the finances that you give. And it's going to take 10 years to get to a place where even one person is on staff. That's not the message nobody, anybody wants to hear. Nobody wants to hear that because then, then, well, I don't waste the next 10 years. I'll go do something else you should go do something else. And there's lots of pastors who should be doing something else. But the point that Isaiah is trying to make is that in the family of God, we have this habit of loving to give ourselves to people who can produce results rather than submitting our lives to a God who loves us. We're convinced that the answer is not in here, it's somewhere else. And so God does the same thing he always does. He's going to purge our church of foreign worldviews. And he's going to say in verse 22, stop regarding man. And he continues with this theme of human exaltation. And he says, I'm going to show you how you do this, not just in the way that you love things from the east, but I'm going to show you how you exalt humanity in the way you treat your leaders. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Now follow this list here. What is God going to remove? The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain, captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful, skillful magician, the expert in charms. And in the place of these leaders, I will make boys their prince, princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the, the, and the despised to the honorable, for a man will take a hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you'll be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. That's how bad it's going to get, that there will be such a leadership deficit that the only qualification for leading anything is, do you own a sports coat? If it's yes, then you can rule over this pile of trash. Verse 7, in that day he will speak out saying, uh, the guy who had the coat, I'm not a healer. And in my house there's no bread nor cloak. Please don't make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying the glorious, his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't even hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For what, is, what, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. And my people, infants are their oppressors, and women will rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up in the course of path. I should probably back up to the whole women thing. That's not just saying because you're a woman. No, that, that word is referencing um, a harem. The king's prostitutes, the king's girlfriends, 
they're going to be the leaders, not just because you're a woman, but the, 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 the kind of women who um, spend their time doing questionable things, they're going to be your leaders now, along with infants. Verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. If you, it is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor in your houses. So, so what do you mean by crushing my people? What are you doing grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. So God's people exalt humanity over God, and we see it in the way that they exalted leaders. So leadership and expectation that we place on leaders is a sign that we love exalting humanity over God, the way we treat leaders. We elevate leaders to a place that is higher than God, and then we're surprised when they fall. We expect them to solve problems that only God can solve, and then we're appalled when they don't do it. So the higher we exalt them, the further they fall. Why is this? It's because God is behind the falling. God does not share his throne with humanity. So when humanity elevates itself, he always humbles them. And as Judah started elevating leaders, God systematically removed them. No more soldiers, no more judges, no more prophets, no more elders, no more captains, no more counselors, no more experts. And in their place, I'm putting unqualified, immature children. And just for a moment, I wonder, while I was preparing this message, I just, the thought crossed my mind, I wonder if this is why we have such a leadership deficit in our churches. Have we spent too much time treating pastors like celebrities? Were we, were, have we been more interested in a pastor that is, uh, has a, lo, a, like a, a lot of initials after his name and education, or are we more interested in him being cool than qualified? Are we more interested in, in the way he says, says things than the way he chooses to live? Is character less important than coolness? Are we watching in the church the same thing that God did in the people of Israel? Well, if he is, what does it teach us? Well, first and foremost, it teaches us the importance of strong leadership. Strong leadership reinforces the fabric of society. God gave us leadership. He gave some people the mantle to carry it. It is a heavy, heavy burden, and they are responsible for setting the example and being the prime representative of God's kingdom. And if they're not, they're hold to a higher standard than people who are not called to places of leadership. And woe to those who were never called to places of leadership, but were elevated by the people around them and now find themselves in a place where they're having to do something they weren't called to do and the people expect them to perform rather than go to God. So if this is true, if strong leadership reinforces the fabric of society and that God has designed this for humanity to function and thrive, when we exalt leaders above God, he removes them. What is our takeaway? Our takeaway is we should pray for leaders, 
honor leaders, and work to be good leaders in every sphere that God has given us. But we should never expect leaders to solve problems that only God can solve. That's our takeaway. God has a way of working amazing things through his kingdom through the structure that he has set up. But when we start expecting things out of that structure rather than going to him, he will break it down brick by brick every single time. That's what he does. Let's go to verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will, bay, excuse me, will lay bare their secrets. Now most commentators would say when he's talking about the daughters of Zion, he's talking about the actual females in Zion. I think that the application is far greater than that, so I'm not reserving this to just the ladies. He says, in that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the Etsy bags, the handbags, the mirrors, the linens, the garments, the turbans, the veils. And instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding, instead of beauty, oh, marked like a slave. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, he shall sit on the ground. And at that time, seven women are gonna take a hold of one man saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us please be called by your name to take away our reproach. That verse four one is a reference to the fact that in Hebrew culture and, and, and most culture during this time, Women only had one of two statuses. They were a daughter or they were a wife. That's it. If your dad died and you weren't a daughter, and if you didn't have a husband and you weren't a wife, you had no status. It was a reproach upon your head because you couldn't own land. You had no rights in the society. And so at this point, the Lord is breaking down his people so low that seven women are gonna grab a hold of the same guy and say, please, let us take your name just to take away our reproach. So in 3.16 to 4.1, God's people are exalting humanity over God and we see it in the way that they fill their lives with excess. They can't stop buying things that are designed to bring comfort and to elevate their status. They spend their money on things like clothes and perfume and mirrors to look at themselves and jewelry. They value obtaining things, but they never give things away. This 
is a sign that God's people are elevating humanity over God because they can't handle excess. They can't say no. They fill their houses and then they fill their garages and then they buy a storage unit to fill that because they can't say no. They don't know when to let go of things because their life is built around holding on to things. So how does God humble people of excess? He humbles them by taking away their excess. He replaces their perfume with rottenness, their belts with ropes, their hair with baldness. He takes all of their full homes, their full garages, and their full storage units, and he purges them. Woe to a country that lives like this. What does this teach us? That when we elevate humanity above God, the same thing always happens. We're brought low. But here's the beauty. You don't have to wait for him to bring you low. You can get low right now. For a people who are stiff-necked and refuse to turn and listen to what Isaiah is saying, Destruction is coming their way, but there's nothing stopping them from saying, I repent now. I turn from this lifestyle now. I've got a bad habit of elevating leaders above God. I've got a bad habit of not being able to hear God's word unless it comes from that pastor's mouth. I can't stop buying stuff. You don't have to wait for the Lord to burn that stuff to the ground for you to say, Lord, help me turn from this now. I don't want you to have to do it. I'll repent right now and turn from it so that I don't have to face destruction and judgment and cleansing and and purging at your hands. I'll do it now and not have to experience it. I'll just head it off at the pass. I make the decision now. Because here's the reality. God will not share his throne with humans. The higher we exalt, the more he brings low. And if you know that that's the case, if you know that that's what's coming, then make the decision now to go ahead and start getting low because here's the deal. The idea that God will not share his throne with anybody is terms of a deal that were set before you were even born, before humanity was even created. God has always been superior. The idea that he rules and reigns from the highest mountain is something that is gonna happen whether you like it or not. That's the terms of the deal and you can't change the terms. We are convinced that we are the exception to the rule because we've been brought up in a culture that told us we can do anything we want and we're beautiful and we're lovely and we're awesome and there's nothing you can't do. I got bad news, there's lots of things you can't do. Hundreds of things, you can fill a library with things you can't do. And that's good. Because it pulls you off of that pedestal that we elevate ourselves on or the one we put other people on. And we spend all of our time trying to rewrite these terms but the truth is this, I'm gonna lay it out as plain as I can. You can't change the terms of God's deal. You can either submit to them or be crushed by them. That's the only options. We've got an entire generation 
of people who were trying to rewrite this and rewrite him and erase him because <clears throat> we're convinced that we can change the terms. Of who, who, who do you think you are telling me that I can't have my best life right now and I can't elevate myself? Who are you? I'm a nobody, but I'm reporting on behalf of a somebody. And, and what he is telling us is it doesn't matter what you try, the more you elevate, the more you advance above his kingdom, the faster you're gonna fall. It's just the way it is, and you can live under it or you can be crushed by it. Now let's finish this, chapter four, verse two. Now he's back into the beautiful what's coming. So we've seen what will be, what is, and let's jump back into what will be. He says, in that day, the day he was talking about in chapter two, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, <laughs> and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Uh-oh, the survivors, so not everyone's gonna make it. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy and everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. That sounds really familiar. Everybody's name who has been recorded in the Lamb's book, of life, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, and there will be a booth for shade by day and from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Isaiah is telling Judah that God is bringing a purge, and here's the bad news. Not all of you are gonna make it through the purge because some of you like your stuff more than you like God. That's why many call themselves the followers of God, but not many actually are. The purification is important to expose those who are just here to play a game. The only ones who will be left after this purging are those who are recorded in his book of life. Their filth will be washed away. He's gonna shelter them with a cloud by day. He's gonna light their path with fire by night. He's gonna be their shelter and their refuge in all the seasons of life. This is what's coming our way if we persevere to the end like Jesus said in the book of Matthew. This becomes our reality when he purges us of the desire to exalt humans above him. God rests on the highest mountain in our life and we walk in the light of what will be and not what is. We will be transformed people. So this is the encouragement for us. A day is coming when the whole earth is gonna bow down to Jesus. And the question is, are you gonna be in that line? Because a day is coming when God's people will be clean and pure. And you have to ask yourself, are you gonna be in that line? Because it requires a tremendous amount of purging 
a spirit of burning and a spirit of judgment, and it's not fun, it's not pleasant, it's not what you would have chose for your life. You wouldn't have decided to start purging and getting rid of garbage in your life that you don't need, but you've held on to for so long. Addictions that own you and define you, things that bring you comfort when God is trying to say, I will bring you comfort, but you say, no, this bottle brings me comfort. These pills bring me comfort. This routine brings me comfort. Not talking to my mom, or my mother-in-law brings me comfort. That's why I avoid people. I don't like people. And God say, no, if you just forsake that attitude and just come over here into what I'm building, I'll change you. No, we say, no, 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 I don't want to be purged. I don't want to be cleansed. I don't want that spirit of burning that's uncomfortable. Then you're not going to be in a place where your name is written in this book. And you're not going to experience the beauty of being sheltered by the God of the universe. So, if we know what will be, then we need to start asking God to make us like this now. So our prayer is, Lord, steer us clear of the temptation to elevate humanity above you. Steer us clear of the temptation to elevate leaders above you and steer us clear of the temptation to fill our lives with excess and things made with the hands of man that tell us we're good people and we don't need to change when there is a cancer in our soul killing us from the inside out and change is what we desperately need. If this is what's coming, then we need to live in the light of what will be. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.